Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. In today's episode, we welcome special guest Benjamin Brown to the podcast. Benjamin is a member of the Neurocultures Collective, a group of neurodivergent filmmakers who are currently working with the Autism Through Cinema project to create a feature film. Benjamin brings along Terry Gilliam's dystopian classic Brazil for our discussion. He is joined by regular hosts Janet Harbord, Alex Widdowson and David Hartley. Just a quick note, we were beset by a number of technical difficulties during the recording of this episode, so we apologise if any sections sound a little ropier than usual. Nevertheless, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, welcome back everyone to another episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, thanks very much for coming back and, and listening to us again. Or if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Um, we just sort of sit here and, and talk about films from a, a kind of autistic perspective. Um, today uh, we've got a, a, a film from the mid-80s, which I'm very excited to talk about because this is a film I really like and haven't seen for a long, long time. Um, so I'm really glad that we're going to be discussing this. this is, we're going to talk about uh, Terry Gilliam's um, strange dystopian film, uh, Brazil, from 1985. And we have a very special guest joining us today. Um, so first of all, we have our, our two of our regular hosts. So we've got uh, Alex Widdowson and Janet Harbord. And then we've got a, a very special guest with us today, uh, Benjamin Brown. Um, Benjamin is uh, part of the Neurocultures Collective, who uh, work with us here at the Autism Through Cinema project. Uh, and I'm now going to hand over to Benjamin, and he's going to introduce himself and introduce Brazil for us. So Benjamin, whenever you're ready. Uh, so uh, there's a number of reasons why I chose this film to be looked at uh, within the sort of um, uh, neurodiverse lens. Um, however, just want to firstly uh, sort of go through an overview of the, uh, of the film, the synopsis, and some of the key characters uh, that you, uh, you meet in the film. Um, so uh, just to give a bit of context, uh, the film was released in 1985, and it's directed by the visionary auteur and Python crew member Terry Gilliam, uh, who is... Uh, Director of, also director of uh, 12 Monkeys uh, and uh, Time Bandits, among others. Um, so called Brazil, but uh, originally uh, the, the, uh, the original title was 1984 and a half. Uh, was one of the working titles slated. Uh, and it's a retrofuturistic dystopian sci-fi satire uh, set rather vaguely uh, somewhere in the 20th century, uh, as the opening title card reads. Uh, so reality and fantasy collide and commingle as Sam Lowry, played by Jonathan Price, uh, an unfulfilled uh, clerk and cog within a, a vast bureaucratic machine, uh, dreams of escaping his humdrum existence and uh, rather like Guido in uh, Eight and a Half, uh, experiences these recurrent and uh, often erotically charged fantasies uh, featuring a Valkyrie-like goddess of a woman uh, who he then glimpses in reality 
uh, in the form of the tomboyish uh, truck driver, uh, Jill Layton, played by Kim Greist. Uh, so finding out that Jill is a, su a suspected terrorist, uh, Sam spirals into a Kafkaesque bureaucratic nightmare of his own de devising uh, as he attempts to save Jill, uh, both in reality and in his dreams. Um, however, he quickly loses all grasp, really, of, of, upon reality in the process and becomes this sort of uh, real-life sort of, uh, Don Quixote figure. Um, however, having uh, copped the blame for a series of so-called terrorist bombings, uh, Sam and Jill's lives are both placed in jeopardy as they uh, feel the full force of the totalitarian state come crashing down upon them. Um, this leads to Sam's chillingly inevitable detainment and torture, uh, and in a sequence of Oxford of 1984 and uh, the sort of infamous Room 101 sequence uh, in the, in the uh, film, uh, film version, uh, we witness Sam's mind unravel completely as he, uh, as he fantasizes of a heroic rescue at the hands of uh, freedom fighters uh, and an escape to a rural idyll uh, with, his, with Jill, um, the literal woman of his dreams. Um, so in terms of, uh, sort of reasons why I chose this film and how it resonates to me as an autistic person, I think one of the main reasons would be the, uh, the protagonist, Sam Lowry. Um, uh, so it really relates to me uh, in terms of his sort of desperate sense of not fitting in with society and his reluctance to comply with what he sees are often absurd and pointless bureaucratic rules and regulations. Um, however, more profound than just, just this is um, being able to then relate to his general discomfort in his own skin um, and even in the film his own suit, which he later changes for one that's almost identical to the previous, um, rather ironically. Uh, he's weighed down with a sense of responsibility to live up to his mother's and indeed society's expectations, um, which to me is uh, a little like um, Gregory, Gregory Peck's character in The uh, Man in the Grey Flannel Suit. Um, there are these immense, immense social pressures that, that he feels that sort of weighing down upon him uh, sort of, uh, constantly. And similar to Joseph Kay in Kafka's The Trial, uh, the film follows the noir-inflected wrong man narrative where people are dealt grave misjustices at the hands of an uncaring state. Uh, and this sense of being unfairly singled out for crimes not committed, uh, to me, resonates as an autistic person. It often feels like we're sidelined from society uh, and made to feel uh, guilty just from simply sort of existing. Um, so Sam Lowry is also this uh, sort of a man-child, really, sort of in arrested development, um, sort of stuck in arrested development. He's, um, you, you see him in the film still doing his own mother's bidding, um, still sort of under the thumb of his, of his mother. Um, he's this naive dreamer who's also socially inept. Uh, he commits repeated social faux pas. Um, he confuses um, uh, the uh, one character's wife's um, surgery uh, on her on her ears with with surgery uh, had to her uh, to her breasts, and so that, yeah, so there's a shared awkwardness um, that um, that Sam has uh, at dinner parties and social gatherings um, that, that uh, you also see with the character of Shirley, um, who of both of them who often sort of uh, commit recurrence or social faux pas. Um, so this also resonates with me and. Uh, about my own insecurities and sort of social inadequacies. Um, and Sam's own delusions also lead him and others into danger. Uh, he has these delusions of grandeur, which um, can also be uh, perhaps associated with neurodiversity or neurodivergence um, and such you know, diagnoses as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, he has this sort of sense of striving for the unattainable rather than being satisfied with sort of 
small victory uh, and taking pride in his own sort of unique skill set, um, you know, such as you know, his uh, computer skills which you see throughout the film. Uh, and so his own abilities at working with uh, computers, for instance, also relates to myself and maybe to other neurodivergent uh, people uh, and this sort of ability to sort of height focus and to be sort of quite highly skilled at process-driven roles and sort of you know, task-oriented um, task positions. And uh, as you see in the film, uh, Sam exceeds at sorting information and uh, also um, as you see earlier, one, one stage in the film, he finds an address for Jill uh, to locate uh, the, the, the uh, character Jill Layton far faster than his colleague can. Um, and also he, he, he shows to be far more proficient in his work than his own boss. Um, and then another, another key reason why I, uh, I chose the film, um, why I thought it, I think it resonates uh, to me personally, um, is the uh, sort of rich set design and the fact that it, it sort of creates this world for the, for the audience to, to lose themselves in. Um, it's, it's a world that's rich in detail and sensory delights, and it's also greatly appealing uh, to me as, as someone on the autism spectrum, because I can, it means I can sort of lose myself in the textures uh, and the sort of wide angles that, that, that uh, you see throughout the film and the, the depth of field um, with uh, sort of... Um, all planes uh, sort of in focus, um, sort of foreground, but also the middle ground and the background uh, sort of in, in, uh, um, in, in complete focus. So this allows you to just sort of take in the details uh, within the frame. Um, uh, and it's not, not unlike the experience that one, one gets when absorbed in the world that uh, filmmakers like David Lynch creates for the audience, so in Twin Peaks, for instance, or uh, notably Mulholland Drive. Um, and uh, also, you have such works as, uh, as uh, Playtime and, and Jacques Tati, uh, which is another sort of clear influence on the film's um, sort of aesthetics and, uh, and some of its themes as well, such as the, the darker side to consumer fetishism. Um, as, you, as you see in one scene um, in Sam's apartment, you have this, uh, his kitchen is sort of um, uh, full, of, full of these sort of useless gadgets, which would be sort of needlessly over-engineered. Um, and it sort of evokes one um, sort of famous scene in, in Jack Tatty's uh, Mon Oncle. And so this, this overabundance of detail in the mise-en-scene, uh, I find really, really quite appealing to me, this, this sort of uh, ability to focus on small details and search for patterns, uh, I find pleasurable. Um, and though I think that all sort of human beings are pattern seekers, I think autistic or neurodiverse people uh, do tend to take a particular pleasure in observing and interpreting often complex patterns, um, and uh, the film very much sort of operates like that. It, it sort of rewards multiple viewings and is full of uh, these sort of little Easter eggs um, that, you, that you now see sort of placed in, uh, in many, many films um, as far as sort of, um, uh, so that you can, uh, they can be used as DVD extras. Um, so you have sort of little, little details like uh, background banners that read uh, suspicion breeds confidence. Um, you have even, even uh, sort of this self-referential um, uh, sort of uh, bit in the film where uh, Gillian himself uh, uh, appears, um, sort of paints himself into the picture by making an appearance as a shadowy figure uh, who follows Sam when he, uh, when he goes to deliver a check uh, to this uh, grieving widow, widow at uh, an apartment uh, complex. Um, so 
so I think, yeah, I think the aesthetic is, is a draw to me. Uh, it adds further textures and layers to the image, um, and sort of also plays to some sort of niche obsessive interest um, that um, neurodiverse people can often can often have, um, uh, such as with uh, you know, with this uh, sort of outmoded technology and sort of um, you know, dial up phones, um, you know, typewriters, and so on. Um, and I think also in terms of the acting as well, uh, that also appeals. It's, it's sort of uh, very exaggerated and um, comic book-like. Um, and, and some of the characters, the sort of lesser characters, are, um, are uh, sort of caricatures. So I think this lack of subtlety uh, appeals uh, as well, um, uh, perhaps to, to some uh, neurodiverse individuals, as it, as it um, makes it sort of easier to understand the characters' underlying motivations, their intentions. Um, and whether they're good or bad, for instance. Um, and then lastly, I, I think also the, uh, it's the science fiction trope of the outsider I, uh, I find appealing, uh, someone who's neurodiverse. Um, as the film itself, it conforms to the sort of very classical sci-fi trope of, of the outsider who's reigning against an unjust system, uh, as you see in such other films as Soylent Green. Uh, and um, yeah, I just think that this, yeah, this ability to root for the social misfits um, uh, sort of resonates to me and, and perhaps to, to others um, who are on the, uh, on the autism spectrum or neurodiverse uh, in some way. Um, and, uh, and I think um, even the ending as well for me is uh, for all the, the bleakness that the ending has, uh, it, also, um, it also has a sort of a, an optimistic note in a sense because we'll get on to um, it's just to what sort of what occurs later on in the film. Um, uh, it, it it definitely seems as though um, the sort of totalitarian state has, has not been able to penetrate his mind. Uh, that his uh, he, he's he's retreated into his own mind, um, and uh, that that also resonates to me in a way as, as someone who's neurodiverse. It's sort of you, no matter how much the um, society might try to change you. Um, they cannot sort of fundamentally alter your, your sort of state of mind. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so, so those, are, those, are, those are some of the reasons why I think it resonates with me as, as someone who's on the autism spectrum or who's neurodiverse. Lovely. Thank you, Ben. That was uh, really interesting and uh, really comprehensive as well. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting to hear your take on it. And, and you, you hit upon quite a lot of the things I've I noted down myself uh, here. It's interesting to hear you make some uh, other cinematic connections as well with the film. Um, I really liked what you were saying about um, the, about the sort of richness of the aesthetic and, uh, and that being an appealing um, thing for an appealing sort of visual world for for that, that sort of the autistic mind may well tend towards something I've been interested in because. Um, I, I did a quite an extensive study of of Blade Runner, which is a film which is quite similar uh, to Brazil, and um, I, I hesitate to say an influence because I would I think probably that Brazil was already underway by the time Blade Runner was released, so I'm not so sure if the, I think there's probably overlap there rather than than influence, but there's certainly um, Gilliam and, and Ridley Scott who directed Blade Runner, may, you know, sort of working in a similar mind frame in some respects and and the thing about that I love about Blade one of the things I love about Blade Runner is this 
similar aesthetic of there being lots of things on the screen and it's very busy um, and lots of rich detail. Um, and yeah, so I, I was very glad to hear, in fact, that, you know, you, one of the things that's really appealing about Brazil for you is this, the richness of what the, of the mise-en-scene of everything that you can see on the screen. And uh, I thought that was really interesting and it certainly makes it a very vibrant and energetic film. Um, um, and yeah, as you say, very sort of rewatchable. Like you, it's one of those films that you can you can see tiny details in it, time and time again. Um, uh, uh, and the more times that you that you sort of go back to it, which was uh, yeah, really really interesting. Uh, yeah, thank you. So I don't know. Does anyone else have any um, any thoughts or reactions to to Ben's overview there? Yeah, similarly, I I was intrigued with what you were saying, Ben, about the uh, the mise-en-scene and the abundance, the overabundance of detail, I think you, you, you called it. Um, I I couldn't stop looking at the different parts of the set and sort of took my eye off the character. Sometimes I was looking at, you know, that suddenly we're in a world where there were massive tubes that seemed to be, you know, who knows what they were carrying, air or something else. Or, um, and that, that somehow seemed linked to what was happening with the women's bodies and the surgery and like this kind of amorphous mess sometimes that would, you know, the background would turn into and bodies were turning into, and then it would all, all be something that was more architectural and more comic book. So there was a lot of movement between the, the styles um, of the scenes, as well as this abundance of detail. Um, and when you, when you talked about the comic book aesthetic, that, that, that rang, you know, that, that's, something I noticed as well. Um, and some of those scenes where you have the figure of, of uh, Robert De Niro, who is, who is the Tuttle, isn't he? Tuttle, not Puddle. Um, he's, the, he's the so-called terrorist who, who should have been um, hunted down instead of the guy who gets arrested in the first scene. Um, but the way that he would disappear, you know, in that very kind of Spider-Man-like way down th- through the building, swinging through this city with very much like an American city, um, it had. It seemed to have quite a lot of different styles it was drawing on, and you've named a lot of them with the neo noir, the sci fi, and and so on. I liked what you said about the noir and the wrong man. That hadn't occurred to me, but I I, I think so. I, I think that brings the sort of the other perspective to it. Where there's something, although it's got the Blade Runner futurology, it's also got a sort of 1950s feel to it. It's got or, or, or earlier. Um, of the, you know men in suits, grey men with in suits with trilbies, um, a British take of that, more of the kind of bowler hat type gentleman, um, that sense of a world where moral standards uh, exist and people are held to them despite all of the hypocrisy and what's what's literally being screened off. So I think all of those all of those things were were being sort of referenced, touched in, on in the film. Um, and they all feel slightly jarring, and it's interesting thinking about that through your perspective. Like, what is it, how does that relate to a sense of uh, an autistic sensibility, where a lot of the world and its social rules and social expectations um, feel quite jarring? Um, yes. So I'm interested in that that link between that 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 way of experiencing the film and that way of experiencing the world. Ben, um, you mentioned one particular scene where um, I think it's Michael Parkinson, whose character, I, if I recall correctly, was called Jack. Tell me if I'm wrong there. But, um, you know, he's talking to our lead and 
um, they're just discussing this scenario where he needs to sort of grapple with this new job and he's trying to get things done and actually secretly trying to track down this woman. And um, Parkinson, no, no, what's his name? Michael Palin. Palin, yeah, Michael Parkinson. Not Michael Parkinson, he's someone very yeah, Michael <laughs> Michael Palin, yeah. So, um, yeah, Michael Palin's like, oh, well, you'll never get anywhere dressed like that. And he presents this suit. And like you said, uh, you know, they're totally indistinguishable. And, you know, as a non-autistic viewer charged with thinking about this film and through the lens of autism, I, I think it really stood out to me as one of those crystal clear moments where um, something is simulated for me. Something is simulated as like, you're suddenly the outsider. Like everybody else can see this, it's obvious, and uh, you're left behind somehow. Um, whilst also being confronted with this incredibly rich world that uh, is over art directed and over stimulating. So I, I, I just wanted to sort of go back to what you're saying um, earlier about that and sort of dwell on it a little bit more because it seemed to me one of the most clear moments where that sort of sense of difference and othering is sort of manifest in a small throwaway gesture. Ben, you, you mentioned um, you mentioned that you've watched it many times. Could you talk us through that a bit about how, how you've experienced this film in those different viewings? Um, and whether things stand out to you, like the scene that Alex is just picking up on, do you notice things like that anew when you're when you're looking, or is it kind of even more background than that? Several times, yes. Um, I think six or seven times now. Uh, I, yeah, I, I've watched it regularly, sort of over Christmas as well, so as, like, as the uh, ironic Christmas movie, um, you know, along with films like uh, um, Die Hard. Um, and yes, yeah, so each time I. I view it, uh, I see new things, new things in it. And I, I saw several new, um, several new things in, in this, after viewing it the, the, the last time for this podcast. Um, one detail um, being uh, with the character of, uh, of Lime, Harvey Lime, who's um, a, a very self-conscious reference to Harry Lime in, in uh, The Third Man. Um, and he is, uh, he's just a big, Give a bit of context. He's um, the colleague of, of, of Sam Lowry's uh, when he's promoted to, uh, um, to information retrieval from, from records. And uh, in this in this case, you see there's one scene where you see um, you see Harvey Lime uh, sort of hobbling um, uh, sort of hobbling out out of this uh, sort of grand entrance hall, um, and it's just in the background. Uh, but it's a, it's a callback to a previous scene, and I'd never picked up on that. And there are just so many other background details and uh, posters, um, you know, so suspicion breeds confidence, and various other things that that you see in the background, um, uh, which which you, yeah, which any viewer who who watches the film multiple times um, will begin to uh, yeah begin to see new things each and every time that they they uh, they view the film. Um, so it it offers. Yeah, it offers new insights and um, new sort of uh, visual stimuli each and every time you, you see it, um, which, I, it's an, it, which is another uh, another thing about the film which which greatly appeals to me. Um, yeah, the, the, its ability to, to watch it again and again and and see new things and to not be bored. 
um, which is which for me is, is is quite a rare thing in in sort of um, mainstream cinema um, to have such an abundance of detail, background detail, which which um, is which has all been so so um, meticulously thought through. Um, and so it's it's quite uh, Wellesian in that case, in that regard. Um, you know, like like Citizen Kane, just the depth of field is um, is immense, <laughs> and there's so much detail in the background that can, uh, that, uh, can be discussed ad nauseum uh, by uh, film enthusiasts as to what it means. Um, you know, in the same way as you, know, you have uh, you know, discussions of. Uh, with the meaning behind Rosebud in, in Citizen Kane and, and many of the other scenes. So, yeah, um, slightly sort of uh, going off on a tangent there, but, um, yeah, it, 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 offers, it offers so much for the viewer on every, every viewing. Yeah, well, I mean, tangents are good. I think uh, Gilliam would approve of as many tangents as possible uh, in, discuss in these discussions. I think one of the things that uh, I found really interesting watching it this time around was obviously Brazil is very much a kind of um, uh, a satire and a kind of parody of of bureaucracy and of the bureaucra bureaucratic processes. Um, and uh, clearly this is something that... Well, actually, I mean, clearly this is something that the, the Pythons were, were always interested in. This is something they were always... Uh, uh, attempting to to lampoon and to sort of stick a pin into so he comes you know Gilliam here comes from a, a a background of of dealing with this sort of thing anyway from from the pythons i was thinking a lot about um the meaning of life the the, the Py, Py, python film uh while i was watching this this time um, but you know, Gilliam really goes for it here in Brazil of the bureaucracy, and the, the the reason why I bring that up is because I think it's quite interesting from the perspective of autism and the perspective of kind of like the 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 social and cultural histories of autism, because it feels like that autism is caught up uh, often within various bureaucratic processes, um, and that the the process of getting even getting a diagnosis of autism or getting um, you know, uh, funding or help or, or any kind of something, anything to do with getting any kind of assistance uh, for an autistic person, you can find yourself lost within a kind of labyrinth of bureaucratic nonsense and bureaucratic processes. There's a um, an essay by uh, a person called, uh, uh, I should really have written their name down, uh, here it is, um, Agri Ismail in a book called Stim, which is a, an anthology of writing uh, edited by Lizzie Huxley-Jones, and it's an anthology of um, writing by autistic people. Um, and this essay is called More Human Than Human, which is actually a quote from Blade Runner, although they never really mentioned that. But anyway, that's a quote from Blade Runner. Um, and Agri Ismail, who's, uh, I believe, is Swedish and talks about the bureaucratic processes of... of, um, of Going through the bureaucracy in, in Sweden to get just to get an autism diagnosis, uh, I just found a little bit of it. Um, oh, I've just sort of lost it. <laughs> yeah, no, this bit where they they go to the the GP in Sweden and, the, and they say the GP office informed me that I was over eight since I was over eighteen. The diagnosis process wasn't really a priority for the health services. It can take a really long time. The nurse told me that's fine. It can take years. I'm okay with that. Just so you know, a really long time. 
I was starting to get the feeling that she didn't want to me, want me to begin the process. Eventually, however, she relented and told me to write a letter detailing my difficulties and hand it in at the GP's desk. What difficulties? The difficulties you have in life to see if we should begin the process. And it's just like... I, that that essay was like really struck a chord with me when I re when I read it um, and uh, yeah as I, I just couldn't get it out of my head as I was watching Brazil because it just is that endless bureaucratic process of filling out forms signing forms uh, going to see the right person or the wrong person at the right desk in the right department at the right time um, there's the scene isn't there where his uh, the the kind of rebel woman who eventually becomes his his girlfriend. Um, uh, goes to, goes to a desk and she's got a form that she's signed. No, she's not. She's signed, but she hasn't stamped it. And the person at the desk said you have to go and get it stamped at this other department, and she, she has to go back. And it just feels like there's a, a there's a there's a there's maybe a connection, a real resonance there with um, how autistic and not just autistic people, but like any kind of neurodivergent person who's trying to navigate the processes of bureaucracy and the the labyrinth that that you end up in, and the difficulties that can be faced in that. So that was just one of the things I thought I, I wanted to bring up uh, in relation to in relation to this film. Uh, yes, I, that, I mean that that resonated with me too um, when watching when watching the film um, and just I think experiences that so many people um, who are neuro, neurodiverse uh, neurodivergent um, experience um, on a on a day to day basis. Uh, yeah, this sort of nigh on impenetrability of bureaucracy. Bureaucratic institutions, um, such as um, uh, you know, when trying to claim disability benefits, welfare benefits, or um, you know, when on job seekers' allowance, and the uh, and the, the absolute um, the minefield that, um, that is universal credit, uh, which has been obviously been roundly criticised. Um, uh, yeah, just this kind of merry-go-round of um, that. That I think so many people uh, who, are, who are neurodiverse experience or have, have some form of disability experience, you know, even with the, even with the diagnosis, the process of getting a, a diagnosis of, of autism or you know, another form of, of neurodivergence can be um, very onerous um, for some uh, and can take many months and a lot of form filling. Uh, so that definitely definitely seemed to resonate with me. Um, when watching the film, um, and when something that it, you know, um, dealing with bureaucracy is something that all people have to experience. Uh, but I think uh, those that are uh, sort of, those that are neurodiverse um, perhaps ex experience it more acutely um, on occasions. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely resonated with me. Following on from that, the the film also had quite a high level of anxiety in it. And I, one of the things I was thinking about a lot was the terrorism. Um, and it's, I, I was thinking how prescient it is. You know, it's, it's a film from 1985 and yet the obsession with terrorism and naming people as terrorists um, has become so much more uh, the, the, the case in, in our world um, that this film seems to prefigure that in a very strong way. And the way in which it, on the one hand, has terrorism in a world to kind of keep people under wraps, under control. We never know who the terrorists are. Maybe it's even the state who's making these terrorist acts and explosions to, to instill this fear. But the way in which 
the explosions, you know, they happen, they take place in a restaurant or, or in all sorts of public places. And then they're just screened off and a whole lot of, you know, troopers will arrive to deal with them. Um, I mean, it, it's some of, some of the most funny moments in the films, but it also sets this kind of like this edgy tone to it all of the time. And there are those people who who feel the tone, as in Sam, you know, he, he kind of, he's the, he seems to absorb the the horror of what's going on around him and, and and that's the reason why he exists in his dreams as he does i, I presume um and there are other people who just ignore it who in, it sort of seem to be immune to it um who are there you know still the plastic surgeon and his clients and so on the people eating in restaurants um so there's something about this world where that it, it seemed to foreground uh the people who have anxiety are the people who actually see things as they are, who see things more clearly than 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 those who don't have it. So I thought that was that that was quite interesting to think about in terms of neurodiversity and and different ways of apprehending the world and and the different things that we call you know typical and atypical, sane and insane, and so on seem to be put into question by this film. Yeah, Janet, what you were saying reminded me of. Um... A sort of reference to Lang, R.D. Lang, and um, his sort of perspectives on mental well-being and uh, the sort of insanity of society. Uh, for me, there was a particular madness in the uh, plastic surgery, uh, particularly the mother sort of striving after this, um, uh, you know, the obsession with youth. And um, I mean, I think it's actually a dream sequence at the end, but she finally reaches something akin to his own age, the son's age. So maybe that doesn't actually happen in the reality of the film, but um, it is in the dream world. Uh, and it reminded me of this quote, um, you know, the, the madman who thinks he has a nuclear bomb in his stomach, um, is he perhaps more well-adjusted than the military pilot willing to drop one on a city? And it's not it's paraphrasing, but I think it sort of resonates with the same... Um, lens that this film produces where we see all these themes present in our culture ramped up and exaggerated to caricature but it, it illuminates just how alienating they could be from someone who doesn't subscribe to them. One of the things I also um, sort of noted down as I was watching this is that this the, the whole sort of energy of the plot and the narrative of the plot um, all stems from kind of a, a, a mistake within the, the kind of the processes and the systems. I remember rightly, there's a, a an insect crawling around on a ceiling, a fly, I think, and someone's uh, trying to uh, squash it, and it falls, and it uh, falls into a typewriter and causes that typewriter to miswrite uh, the name um, Tuttle as Buttle, or the other way around, um, and uh, yeah, and then the, the, the whole the, the whole sort of chaos and energy of the of the the narrative is all sort of stemmed from this one. Miss just one tiny mistake within the machine of the of the of the various processes, and I was and I was caught up on this idea of of the mistake and of the kind of of the efforts of the many of the other characters to try and sort of squash this mistake or to try or even to just deny that it it even exists that there's no possibility that any, that any of these machines could ever make any kind of mistake everything must be correct and 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 true and right and there was something there about how that connects with the way in which the sort of neurotypical way of thinking of um of if something 
goes wrong or something appears to be incorrect or mistaken or, or, or a ripple of some kind, then it must be quashed and brought back into um, the, the streams of normality and everything must be set again into uh, the correct the correct pathways, the correct routes and the correct straight and narrow and how things should be. Um, and I, I get, yeah, I think watching this film in the context, therefore, of thinking about neurotypicality and neurodivergence, um, it's got that, the, 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 you can perhaps read a metaphor in there of, of the extent to which the neurotypical, neurotypical people will almost absurdly bend over backwards to kind of eradicate any kind of hint of anything that might not be typical um and i feel that that's sort of something of what this film is trying to do and a, and a lot of that comes through as well in the the sheer absurdity of it and obviously gilliam and all the pythons before him and this kind of uh this sort of era of, of comedy is all to do with being very absurdist and very extreme and silly um but i think that that's part of what absurdity and satire try to root out is this obsession i think that neurotypicals have of everything being correct and straight and narrow and normal quote unquote normal um and one of the other things connected to that that this reminded me of um was uh because i i, I find i'm kind of fascinated by absurdity and by satire and comedy and how satire comedy and absurdity are not things that are necessarily normally associated with autism or haven't been historically associated with autism um with this this kind of concept i suppose that autistic people are are not comedic or don't get humor or don't get comedy which is also which obviously is nonsense but there is a sort of sense that there isn't that autistic people are not necessarily interested in comedy but i think that the absolutely opposite is true and that autistic people really do love and thrive actually on absurdity and the one thing that um it reminded me of was the this was something that came that comes up in uh, remy yergo's authoring autism at one point where she talks about um the Institute for the Study of the Neuro Neurologically Typical. And this is this kind of like um, absurdist um, piss take website, basically, that was created by autistic writers, bloggers. Um, yeah, which is called the Institute for the Study of Neurologically Typical, which if you take that as the, the letters of that, it, it spells out isn't, I-S-N-T, isn't. Um, and yeah, and it's like a website. I think you can still find this website, which features like clinical tests and symptom checklists for neurotypicality. Um, one of the quotes is neurotypical syndrome is a neurobiological disorder characterized by preoccupation with social concerns, delusions of superiority and obsession with conformity. Neurotypical individuals often assume that their experience of the world is either the only one or the only correct one. Um uh, yeah, and I and I was kind of reminded of that. I think whilst watching Brazil, and I think it's that's quite a rich way to sort of see not only Brazil but also quite a lot of the kind of Python and Python esque uh, humour from down the years of some of the things that they're trying to to lampoon and to 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 say something about really. With that, uh, David, I think um, yeah, the absurdist humour um, is is rich in the film, and it's something that um, I think many neurodiverse individuals do gravitate towards as they sort of um well the, myself at least find um you know norm sort of um social norms and um etiquettes 
sort of baffling often and uh, in their sort of absurdity. Um, such as you know, dinner party rituals, for instance, um, you know, as you see in, in the film, uh, in, the, in the dinner party sequence, um, just everything is, is, is made to look absurd, um, right down, down to the, having pictures for, for what meals you, you're about to have, and the numbers, the numbering system, I'll have the number one, I'll have the number two, and so on. Um, and everything is sort of, yeah, um, social etiquette is sort of lampooned in the film, uh, and completely um, exposed for um, its, its ridiculousness at times. Um, so that definitely definitely resonated with me. Uh, and also your point on, um, on uh, sort of um, the film sort of reflecting a neuro, uh, neurotypical um, sort of uh, standpoint in wanting to sort of quash all difference. Um, I also think is, is reflected in, in Brazil in the film. And um, even for me, the, the, the bug that's, um, that's uh, squashed at the beginning of the film that, that um, then ends up being in the typewriter and, and causing the, the, uh, the mistake in the, uh, in the names, um, which then snowballs into, into, into what, um, uh, into the mistaken identity you later, you later see in the film. Um, even even the, the bug itself for me is kind of like the neurodiverse individual. It's, it's sort of this um, fly in the ointment that um, shouldn't be there and that is not, um, is not uh, welcomed um, within the neurotypical uh, environment and so must, must be quashed. Um, so, so yeah, I think it, it, it definitely does resonate with me in that, in that sense. Um, and also just sort of other other um, themes in the film, such as when uh, when Sam Lowry is promoted and he's presented uh, with his very own office, you know, his very own door to his very own office, um, and uh, he's, he's congratulated, and they say congratulations, DZ015, welcome to the team. Um, that seemed to resonate for me as well. Uh, to some 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 sort of neurodiverse individuals' experiences of um, of, of work life um, and sort of at times feeling like they're not really recognised as a, a true person, a true individual, um, and so yeah, the sort of sense of depersonalisation I think um, comes across, uh, and I think I can relate to in past one or two past jobs. Um, thankfully, not in the one I'm in now, um, but but it, it is something that. Um, I know some um, some individuals can experience um, and a sort of ableist mindset um, where autistic people are uh, sort of slightly slightly othered in a sort of a, probably mostly in sort of a sort of polite way in sort of a socially acceptable way uh, sort of sidelined um, and at times exploited um, by by workers uh, you know, made to do work that they shouldn't really be doing. For instance, if you see in, in, um, in Brazil, Sam Lowry basically does the job of his boss. Uh, and if even, even, even asked whether he could sign, uh, sign the check, uh, so his boss can't even sign a check. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's things like that, that I think um, uh, I, can, I can relate to uh, sort of this, yeah, sort of a, 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 neuro, a neurodiverse individual sort of trying to navigate their way through a, a neurotypical world, uh, which they find baffling and confusing. I wanted to just 
think about casting for a bit on the back of what you were saying then, Ben, and about about the kind of the the difference that this this film makes us think about whether it's the fly, whether it's a person. And it, it seemed to me very important that it's Jonathan Price who's playing this role, um, that he has a sort of softness that um, I think, I, I think your link to Jacques Tati is very, is, is, is a good one here. I think Tati has that same kind of softness, gentleness to me. He's funny, but he's, he's quite, um, quite dreamy. Um, and in this film, Sam is is dreamy. He's unambitious. He, you talk about him as a man child. He has a lot of characteristics that I think, um, you know, would, would typically, in a binary sense, get put on the side of of the feminine. Um, and I, and I think I think it's interesting coming to this from the point of view of that, you know, the the madness of medicalization and diagnosis with with autism, where where there's all of that discourse of of the male brain, you know, autism associated with versions of um of 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 being of of, of being a man, of of having a, a certain sort of brain that is going to operate in a very rational way, sort of over-rational way, a kind of machinic way. You know, if we get that sort of sense through the work of someone like Simon Baron Cohen. Um, and yet this film sort of upends that, that, that the woman has more um, has, has more traits of, of, of so-called masculinity um, and, and Sam has, you know, they're the inverse. Um, it's a very long way of saying that. Uh, but I think that's, that what, what the film does is, is kind of throw into the air those ideas of masculinity and femininity. And that seems to me very useful when we're thinking about autism, that it gets away from those kinds of cliches, basically. We were talking a little bit earlier about Sam Lowry's character being a sort of archetype of a neurodivergent individual struggling with uh, a, a neurotypical society and, and and what that might mean as a sort of analogy. analogy. But then, I mean, Tuttle, the uh, Harry Tuttle, the the sort of maverick mechanic. Um, what kind of character does he represent? Because he surely also is a sort of neurodivergent um, metaphor in this, uh, or metaphorical character in this narrative. And I started thinking about, oh, who could it be? Is it sort of a David Byrne type character, or you know, someone who sort of has it? You know, incredible success and through the sort of different way of seeing the world. And then I realised, um, you know, Temple Grandin might be the uh, sort of ideal analogy or, or analogue here where um, we have this individual who's thinking very, very differently about how the machinery and, and mechanisms of a, an industry that's uh, crucial to the world functioning um, should be run differently and how to cut through all the red tape and the ridiculousness of the conventions used to operate these systems. So, um, yeah, I, I thought, you know, it hasn't been long since we screened uh, Temple Grandin at the Barbican, so it's fresh in my mind. Um, yeah, and I, and I think, you know, Robert De Niro might be Temple Grandin in this situation. It's also such inspired casting, I think, as well, isn't he, Robert De Niro, in that role? I, I, I just... It's it's always a surprise when he pops up. It's like it's it's just always like a it's the same level of surprise of when Samuel L. Jackson pops up in Jurassic Park. You go, oh yeah, he's in this film, and Robert De Niro's here in Brazil. And I, I and I think he's I don't know he's got a certain something about De Niro and his kind of wackiness and his clownishness that that sort of suits roles like this where he can he can be the very serious um, 
you know, young Don Corleone from um, Godfather 2, but he can also be this total clown. And yeah, it's interesting you're picking up on him as a kind of, of, of Tuttle as a kind of neurodivergent character because you kind of write in a way, he's this kind of solo, uh, he very much is very confident within himself, zipping in and out, um, knows exactly how to fix the problem compared to the other two um, people that come in uh, to try and fix it and they just end up ripping the entire apartment apart, apart and not fixing anything. And then there's that wonderful scene later, isn't there, where he um, he comes back and reconnects the waste pipe um, to to their suits that they're wearing, and it, the the waste sort of fills up inside the the suits of the of the other two engineers, um, which is horrible but but incredible. Um, and yeah, I like that. I like that idea of of uh, De Niro as a kind of neurodivergent character. But I feel like there's a there's maybe one or two crop up throughout the film, but then they. And as you were saying before, Janet, about the kind of uh, the subversion of, of gender stereotypes as well, I, I was thinking a little bit about, and I've noted her name down as I was watching it, there's a character called Sally, I think she's called Sally, who um, is the, I want to say, daughter of um, of Sam's mother's best friend. And she's just this really meek kind of character with uh, braces who... Uh, that that uh, Sam is set up with on a date, and he's not interested in her at all. And she's just this really meek little girl who doesn't quite know how to um, communicate properly and doesn't know how to when to. She's she's got this thing where she's offering him salt for his meal, but she offers it to him too early, and his and her mother's like, not not yet, do it later. And she's like, salt, and she's a sort of bit of a strange character. But then again, later you meet her again. And and he says, Sam says to her, do you know what? Sorry, I'm just not interested in you. I, I think our, our parents have made a bit of a mistake here. I'm not interested in you. And she turns around to him and says, yeah, I'm not interested in you either. I don't like you at all. Um, and that's kind of, there's this that lovely, it's a really lovely comedic moment because you sort of think, oh yeah, okay, here's a, another character that I, I had an assumption about earlier on. And actually that's sort of been inverted and there's there's more there's a sense of kind of rebelliousness sort of locked away, I guess, in, in all of the characters in some ways. Um, and I really like that moment in particular. Where she, and then he sort of gets up to walk off from her and says, OK, thanks, bye. And she sort of smiles and then grimaces at him as he walks off. It's a really funny little moment, which I really enjoyed. She's called Shirley. Shirley, sorry. I think I heard that as Sally as I was watching it, Shirley. OK, sorry, Shirley. <laughs> yeah, I think that the, the character Shirley also resonates with me um the film and uh, and that scene in particular uh, uh when she's well well both scenes actually which you see with shirley um a, you know, firstly when she's she um makes the social faux pas as you mentioned of, of passing the salt uh which i thought was quite sort of autistic in a way something to do with a, um a, sort of a clumsy social faux pas uh, but then later in the second scene that you see with uh, between the, between sam and, and shirley um, as you mentioned, uh, where they're sort of set up on the on the state, um, and yeah, just that exchange of um, uh, yeah, the exchange that they have, where where they both say that they they don't like one another, I, I found was also sort of quite refreshingly um, <clears throat> refreshingly neuro different in a way. It was kind of um, not something that you're supposed to say, of course, um, to to someone on a, on a on a date. Um, 
uh, sort of social etiquette um, um, dictates that you're not supposed to say such things. Um, and it also reminded me strangely of, uh, of the film The Invention of Lying, um, where in that film um, the, the setup is that um, and the underlying conceit is that um, none of the no one in the world is able to lie, and then someone just comes along and uh, out out of nowhere is suddenly able to to tell lies. Um, but this yeah, this, this world in which no one can lie is kind of <laughs> I suppose um, well maybe fairly sort of stereotypically associated with um, your diverse individuals uh, that do yeah do often struggle to to tell lies of very can, can, be, can be very honest. Um, and so, yeah, just this, this scene in which they're both very honest about their own feelings um, struck me as quite near a difference, rather than hiding behind uh, you know, social niceties. I just wanted to ask everyone, what do we make of the ending? Because the, the, the ending's really interesting for me, and to be honest, watching it this time around, I'd totally forgotten that that was the ending, so I was totally bought into Sam's dream this sort of fantasy that he has um just to put it in context of it, um the the ending is that that sam has been taken away and he's in this enormous chamber which looks like something out of chernobyl or somewhere um and he's put onto a, t a chair and he's going to get tortured um and then he seemingly gets rescued by uh De Niro's character and and others who come zip blinding down and, and and rescue him in this big big fight and then there's this very long extended sequence where he ends this you know, you know escapes with um with his girlfriend and goes off and they sort of live in this idyllic world but then we very suddenly cut back to the torture chamber and it's apparent that he's not this is just a fantasy and that he's not escaped at all and that he's suddenly just lost he's he's kind of gone completely insane and he's lost within his fantasy and they just sort of um his torturers kind of just sort of leave him and, and go okay well he, that's it now he's, his brain is gone uh it's interesting because i was when i was looking at the, the background of the film and so on um apparently um the 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 producers didn't like this this ending originally and they didn't want it it didn't play very well with um with uh, the early screen uh, early screenings of the film um which interestingly is something something very similar happened to Blade Runner um where there was a, a, a kind of slightly gloomy ending and and uh, in with Blade Runner the theatrical release they had to sort of tack on a happy ending or more happier ending to 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 of please the producers and i think as, as far as i understand it Gilliam fought for his ending that he wanted and he did eventually get it um but yeah, I, I wondered how people reacted to it, and, have, and um, how does how does it resonate as a kind of because it's a very bleak and downbeat way of ending things. But I did think it was really interesting, and I think it's a much better ending than a happy ending. Well, it's very cruel, isn't it? You know the way that he treats the audience, uh, giving them everything they want in increasingly fantastical means, and then just pulling it all away from you. I was disappointed. Well, it wasn't really, no. I know, I know it's quite an impressive thing to do to resist Hollywood. But um, no, I mean, it, it, discomfort is maybe the, the, the key theme in this film, so why not? It, it also reminded me of something you said, Alex, when we, we discussed Pi. Um, at the end of Pi, he, you know, it's a pretty gloomy ending when he, he kind of drills his head and, and, and it's sort of the neurodiverse a divergent character doesn't, you know, doesn't kind of win the day. 
Um, and the ending of this reminded me of the same, you know, is it, 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 it left me with a sense of that, that someone who is different can't exist in the, in the given world. You know, they, they can only exist in, 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 their own, in their own dream world, which is much nicer, far more preferable to the one that, that is given. Um, so, I get, yeah, I was, thinking, I was thinking about it in those terms. But it, did we need something as, as, uh, as, as dark as this? There was no... They, you know, there could have been something between the Hollywood ending of him running off with Kim Grice's character and, uh, and, and where he's left in that very, very horrible kind of chamber that David was describing. And um, he's, you know, he's so diminished as a, as a figure in the landscape, you know, in the, the way that the camera moves up and down that track when it goes towards him and comes back again. It really emphasises the sense of his, his tiny figure, it's like the frame of him um, in, that, in that scene. Um, yeah, I found it quite dark. Yeah, um, my personal feelings of, of the ending is that it's, it's, it's astounding. It's one of my uh, favourite uh, sort of cinematic endings of all, all, all the cinema. Um, I, I, it, visually, it's, 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 um, it's, incredible to, it's an incredible spectacle, um, seeing these cooling towers, um, which shot in uh, Croydon cooling towers, uh, Croydon power station that's, that's since been demolished, I believe. Um, incredibly imaginative uh, locations to choose, which is typical of Gilliam, uh, being a kind of master, masterful um, location scout that, that, that he is, as well as the director. Um, uh, the, yeah, in terms of the, the bleakness of the uh, of the ending, um, yeah, I, I definitely can see that 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 sent, yeah, the, the sort of the side of things in which. Which he's he's left there, sort of like in a diving bell, um, un, unable to to sort of uh, exist in in the real world, uh, unable to sort of fill his um, make his dreams come become a reality, and so he has to retreat into the into his own internal fan, sort of private fantasies. Uh, so that is rather bleak <laughs> as an ending. Uh, I also found it, it tinged with optimism um, in the sense that. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, that he was still able to sort of um, um, enact his fantasies, albeit um, yeah, just, just within his own head. Um, uh, but in a sense, you know, the state, the totalitarian state, was unable to penetrate his own mind, which was a small victory um, in, a, in, a, in a sense there. Um, uh, but yes, it, it's... <laughs> Undoubtedly, a, a bleak ending for mainstream cinema in terms of mainstream cinema, and the American ending, the American cult, which um, um, I believe was like Love Conquers All uh, ending, they called it. Um, it, it just ended um, just before the point at which you see sort of the big reveal um, that, that it's all in its own mind. So it ends with 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 Sam and and Jill sort of um, together in this. Um, sort of perfect idyll, rural idyll, and, um, uh, and so that sort of conforms to um, uh, viewers' expectations. Uh, but the fact that the, the film doesn't end like that in terms of the Gilliam's own um, intended cut, um, for me, is it's fitting to the to the to the whole um, 
message of the film and its sort of anti, um, anti-state sort of a, a stance and uh, anti-authoritarian stance that it would be non-conformist. Um, so I think it fits perfectly um, within the within the context of, of the film and what it's what it's trying to say. Great, thank you very much, Ben. And yeah, I think that's um, that's probably a good a good place to to stop then since we've we've reached the end of the film um so thank you very much uh, uh that was a really interesting discussion about a, a film which is really rich and i'm sure we could have talked for another another hour or two about the film because there's so much to say about it um but yeah thank you uh that was really great uh so we'll we'll close things off now and i'll say a formal thank you to uh alex and janet for your contributions today but a special thank you uh to benjamin brown uh firstly for um bringing uh, Brazil to us uh, to look at and also for joining us and talking through um, so thank you very much Ben thank you very much and thank you to the listeners as well for listening in um, to this episode if you enjoyed it please um, send us a message if you've got anything to say about Brazil that we haven't covered uh, we'd love to read it um, but in the meantime uh, yeah thank you and uh, join us again in a couple of weeks time for another discussion thank you for listening goodbye You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London and the Wellcome Trust. Thanks also to Leverett Jakes for supporting us with their unfailingly excellent editing skills. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion of the films we talk about, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email us at cinemaautism at gmail.com. That's cinema autism with a shared A in the middle of the word. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now.